welcome to Healing 101, the mini bite-sized episodes that are bursting full of information from leading experts and doctors who are here to help us understand difficult topics and teach us about the various ways we might be able to improve our mental health. The point of these episodes is to educate you about different mental health disorders and therapies that you may never have heard of before, because ultimately, the more people know, the more people we can help on their healing journeys. On today's Healing 101, I am joined by Dr. Rachel Evans, a chartered psychologist who specializes in eating disorder recovery. Her career choice was actually inspired by her own struggle with an eating disorder. Rachel knows exactly how it feels for everything you do to be ruled by thoughts of food and weight. However, one thing she is very keen to point out is that it's not a one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to eating disorder recovery. In today's episode, we talk about how her work differs from traditional eating disorder therapy and why holistic support is so important. I'm going to ask why you started to become interested in eating disorders in the first place. Yeah, so I think since I was little, I wanted to be like a counsellor or I did my work experience at school in a school for children with special educational needs. So I thought I kind of wanted to go down that route to begin with. I was always interested in like helping people and like talking to people, but I wasn't necessarily interested in eating disorders. And then I did psychology at uni. I kind of didn't really know what I wanted to do with it because you have to do extra training to be a psychologist. You can't just do like your BSc and be qualified to work with people. Then I did a master's in health psychology because I didn't know what else to do. And then during that time, I became quite obsessed with healthy eating. I was reading like a lot of papers about what people eat and I wanted to do health promotion actually, like how can we help people be healthier, inverted commas and that sort of thing. Um, And I actually ended up developing an eating disorder myself. Um, And then after recovering from that, it kind of gave me that trajectory for actually I want to help other people. Will you tell us a bit more about your eating disorder? So did that start when you did your master's or was that a university and how did it start? I think growing up, I was kind of aware of my body. I think a lot of people are like I felt bigger than other people and I think society was telling me that's not a good thing. But I never really did any drastic diets, but I would do the kind of thing of like diet to lose weight for an event and then like kind of just go back to eating normally in a range of foods and things and then I think when I was in my final year I was becoming more interested in like quote-unquote healthy eating and like going to the gym and stuff and then when I started the master's like looking back I realized actually it was like a big life shift as well and I did a lot of sports during my undergrad which I'd stopped doing and it's almost like I was like oh now I can do well at eating healthy So I think then I just become more and more focused on food, got even stricter on the rules that I had about food and the exercise that I was doing. Then I would start getting anxious if I didn't exercise. I would start getting anxious if I didn't eat certain things or I ate other things. And then I got a job abroad in Singapore, which was good in a sense, like I had more freedom and time. But then I came even more focused on eating and exercise and food because I didn't have a lot of other things in my life like I worked with people who were lovely but I didn't really have a lot of friends I had a lot of spare time at the weekend and my dad came out to visit me and tried to like highlight to me I don't think you're okay Uh, you know you need to eat more but things didn't really change and then I came home and then I did get some therapy 
only because I really wanted to complain about my parents. It wasn't really uh, for the eating because I was living with my parents again, but I didn't have a job to come home to. So they were super supportive, but they were obviously like really worried about me because they could see like my physical health wasn't very good. My mental health wasn't very good. So I got some help, but then I started binge eating. And then that turned into bulimia because I thought, oh, it would be a good idea to try and like get rid of this food. And then things kind of got better because actually that therapist helped me like with a life direction, which is when I applied for my PhD. But then also long story short, I was kind of okay my first year, things were getting better. I still kind of had an eating disorder, but it wasn't as bad as it had been. And then in my second year, I lived by myself. And again, I think I was just lonely, isolated, and then the eating disorder could really take over. I was binging and purging every day, multiple times a day. And then I kind of made the decision for myself then, like I can't do this anymore. I think up until that point, I kind of been in denial again, or like just not wanting to face it, even though I did psychology, I knew about eating disorders, but I didn't want to think it was happening to me. What do you think really helped you to recover and to make that mental transition into feeling that you wanted to get better so I think there were two kind of points that I recognized that I wanted to recover one was after I'd worked with the therapist and so I had this new goal right I'm going to do this PhD so that was the first time I wanted to get better and then I think stuff just slowly got worse as I like put more pressure on myself to do well in the PhD which ironically I was doing well until I started like freaking myself out about it (laughs) And then I think it was just when I realized like, this is taking over my entire life. This is like the first thing I think about when I wake up. This is the last thing I think about when I go to sleep. It's stopping me from doing things. Just for example, like I booked to do this yoga thing in York with my friend who was a yoga instructor. And I woke up, I'd got to the train station and I just felt so physically awful, like so drained. And I was just like, do you know what? I cannot get on this train and go and do this event that I've really been looking forward to because I just feel so horrendous because of what I was doing last night. And I think it was just a series of things like that. And also realizing like I'd gone on holiday with my boyfriend and I was just planning when I was going to binge and purge when he was away for one day. And I thought, I don't want my holiday to be ruined by this. So I think I was slowly stacking up reasons why I didn't like what I was doing. And I wasn't seeing like the results of inverted commas that I was expecting you know for my body I just I had too many reasons not to do it like it was damaging my teeth so I went to the NHS and they obviously had their different policies and their rules they were going to offer me help but it came with certain conditions and things that I would have to do and I didn't really like that but I kind of felt like they weren't going to help me they were offering me the help but it wasn't really what I wanted so I got a bit annoyed and then I was almost like right I'm going to show you that I can do this by myself. Like I'm not going to go back. And I think also then I decided I want to help other people with this. So I felt like I need to recover now so I can have that as my career. I so identify with that pattern of like going away and all you can think about is the food and you're just planning on having that like window of opportunity and almost like pushing people away from you because you want that secret space in order to do your thing. And it's almost like that claustrophobia sets in. And yes, your head might be telling you that you want to binge, but what I've definitely found helpful, I don't know if this helped you, but for example, I want to sit down and have all those like raw treats that I've been saving up and I want to have 
four pieces of that cake and I want to have three of those chocolates and four of those and five of those. And in fact, if I sit down and often actually it's far worse at night. So if I make myself when I don't necessarily feel like it, say at lunchtime in the middle of the day and say, okay, I'm going to have one chocolate and half a piece of that cheesecake. And I kind of just get it out of my system that way. And even though I might, my head might then say, oh, but you didn't enjoy it as much as though you as if you'd had it in secret in the evening and all stacked up with like plenty of supplies and had that sense of this bottomless pit of how much you could eat. But then I know no, because this actually hasn't left me feeling as physically shit. And then the chemical withdrawal sets in because you then have to feel the compulsion to restrict. Whereas actually if you do it in the day and in moderation, it's then like, okay, I wake up tomorrow morning and I feel fine. Yeah, I think also you kind of spoke now about like reframing one thing that really helped me so when I was recovering I was doing this pre-recorded like hypnosis it was actually about stop smoking but then every time the person was like smoking I was like binging and just something they said on that I like was such a light bulb for me and it was that often smokers they feel better before they've even had the cigarette so say someone's at work and they're stressed and they're going out for their cigarette break they feel better before they've even lit up the cigarette And I was like, oh my God, that's me. Like when I'm walking to the shop to buy my binge food, I already feel better. And it was almost just like, oh, so it's not about the food. It obviously is about the food, but it's not about the food because I've not even had it and I'm already feeling differently. And it just like almost helped the food lose its power. But I don't know how you how you think about that or feel about that no I completely agree I think it's like an addict getting your fix and I I totally relate to that because I think as the awareness sets in more and more you actually start to dread the actual binge because you can fast forward and know what the after feeling is like so in fact the anticipation is more exciting because your mind thinks that you're doing something that you're going to numb out on you're going to enjoy but in fact because the awareness is ignited when you're doing it you're suddenly like actually why am I doing this? Because I know where this goes and I don't need this anymore. It's not a clean line recovery. It's not something that just goes overnight. You might have two good weeks and then you might have a bad week and you might need to have a small binge, but it doesn't matter as long as you're moving in the right direction. And it is, as you say, becoming less frequent and they're becoming less bad. I think the key is to not beat yourself up because I think it's, you've got to have that compassionate approach. But I think recovery is also about having other things, other coping mechanisms, because it might seem actually binging is the only way I can zone out. And for me, like when I stopped binging for a couple of weeks, like I was really determined. It was the new year. I'd had my thing with the NHS (laughs) and I was like, going to recover. And then I went to this two day workshop. It was about giving presentations. And I don't know why the guy, I just found him so annoying. It was like really grating on me. And after the second day, I just remember thinking, I don't know how to cope without binging. Like, I just can't deal with all these emotions and all of this. So I I did it on that occasion. But then it's almost like with my clients, we talk about, okay, but what did I learn from that? How can I move forward from this? Yes, it's happened. I'm not going to beat myself up about it. I probably wished it didn't happen, but it did. What have I learned? Okay, I need other coping mechanisms now. If I get all those emotions, what else could I do instead? Um, so it's like you were talking about your triggers, like understanding your triggers and trying to find like what else could be the reward if like the binging is the reward or the purging is the reward, like the release, the positive. What can you do instead? And that's often a process of trial and error. 
well, sometimes people find it first go, which would be lovely, but it doesn't always happen um, like that. And I think, like you said, with that self-compassion piece just helps you to keep going when it's not working out quite perfectly, but you can see the general direction that you're going in as positive. Yeah, it can be incredibly patronizing when people just say, oh, you might just want to find a purpose or find something you really care about. And you're thinking when you're in the thick of it, well, you've got no idea what a mess I'm in in my head. It takes up 24 hours a day. I dream in my eating disorder. Don't you think that I'd love to have another purpose, but I'm too consumed with this? And you feel like such a a failure and such a sense of judgment and shame again from other people when they say that. And it's just, I would just like to reiterate to listeners who have a loved one or a family member or a partner who suffers from an eating disorder, it is just totally the wrong thing to say. All people need to focus on is that lovingness and that acceptance that you so crave and that you need and that sense of safety that they can instill to help you and hold your hand in order to just make that bridge to recovery. Yeah, I think that's so true. So when I was working with the therapist that I was talking about, that's when I'd started binge eating. And then she would say like, oh, why don't you do some yoga when you wake up instead? And it's like, no, but it's like she didn't understand. So I think sometimes talking to someone who understands that maybe the first little step isn't, oh, I'm not going to go and eat that thing. Might even be just waiting 10 seconds before you go and do the behavior. Okay, you've still done it, but you're like helping to break the habit. And if people were to support you with seeing that is a positive step, all the better. And I was just going to add, so my podcast, I've got a podcast, it's called Just Eat Normally. Because I think people don't understand. They want you to just, well, just do it. Why can't you just do it? But like, there's so many little things that went into building this eating disorder and all the rules and all the thoughts. And like you've already mentioned, there are lots of dimensions to it. Yes, there's food, there's body image. There's often like how you feel about yourself. There's relationships. There's lots of things that come into it. It's not just a, oh, snap, all that has changed. This stuff has to shift more slowly. Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. Rachel, why do you think that a more focused, personalized approach is so essential for people who are struggling with eating disorders? Everyone is so unique. You know, they've got different past history, different life events that have brought them to this point. They're struggling with different issues, even within the eating disorder. And so I think just one blanket approach isn't going to help everyone. I think it can be really disengaging as well. Like I was talking about when I sought help and they were like, right, this is what we're giving you. It really didn't connect to me. Like I didn't want to do homework at that point. I wasn't that motivated. It was really off-putting. And so I think like that client-centered approach, being able to adapt, I have some clients who want me to give them something to do between the sessions. Like we'll work out together what it is that they're going to do, but they like that. Um, Whereas other people, they want to have the session. They will take action between the next time, but we've not pre-described what it is. And so I think different people just, their brains work in different ways, especially Um, There is a link between neurodiversity and eating disorders. So I think 
just trying to fit everyone in the same kind of structured approach we're going to miss out on a lot of things that could be helpful for someone but I think actually being able to adapt to different clients is a really good skill and in my practice I've seen it as like only beneficial really and do you find it hard to help people stop particularly with bulimia I mean it's such an addictive pattern of behavior the the purging it definitely has such a neurochemical reaction in the brain that it is very very hard to stop and and what do you advise your clients to do from the first moment that they come to you and they say look I really want to stop this behavior but I just can't people recover in different ways I have some clients who when they start working with me they stop the behaviors quite quickly and then it's about okay they might still be having the urges how can we help them reduce those urges and think about food differently and I have other clients who we've been working for a couple of months and then they're still engaging in their behaviors generally with less frequency um, but sometimes not but just I think realizing we're doing work behind the scenes to change how they're thinking about it like we were talking before like often it becomes less rewarding or people get more awareness as they're about to do the behaviors so it becomes less enticing for them to do it so I think it's easy for me because I've seen people go through different transitions or stages and different trajectories of recovery that I can like have a bird's eye view for people so I think just keep reminding them or I get permission from my clients to share about them with other clients if that makes sense so I kind of sometimes tell them a story or I had client xyz and this happened to them and then we did this and then they had this positive outcome just so they can see oh other people like me have been in this situation and they've kind of got through it I think many of our listeners will be interested to hear about the bodily ramifications and the physical ramifications of of bulimia and what the long-term health implications are. And if you're in recovery for bulimia, what you can expect to happen once you stop binging and purging. Well, there's different kinds of bulimia in a sense, in terms of like, how are people purging? So bulimia is when you have a binge which is eating more than usual kind of in a set amount of time which would be followed by compensatory behaviors so we've spoken about like um, self-induced vomiting compensating with exercise or compensating with like severe restriction or fasting there's also taking laxatives so those different things would have different impacts on your body but some of the main ones can be that day in terms of laxatives and self-induced vomiting, influence your electrolyte levels, which is actually very dangerous. So that influences how your heart is functioning and actually you could kind of have a heart attack. And people always think that won't happen to me. But obviously it does happen to people. People die from it. The more kind of superficial things, like obviously vomiting can really affect your teeth. It can affect your glands, your fingers, just generally physical health if you're depleting yourself of nutrients. I said my hair was falling out, so things like hair, skin, just general well-being often impacts people's mood. Laxatives obviously can have a really severe impact on your digestive system, um, which doesn't always go back to normal. I think especially if you're taking laxatives, um, it's worth seeing another health professional, so like a dietitian who's specially trained in eating disorders or your GP or some medical doctor, because sometimes you can't just stop like full stop sometimes you have to kind of cut down on them because of the effect on your digestive system can you think of any more I always like forget them because there's loads 
quite often the jowls as well. You can see when someone's bulimic, when they've really been purging a lot, their, their cheeks get very swollen. Um, and as you said, the teeth is, is a big one. I mean, it's not pretty, basically, is what people need to hear. And it's the internal physical symptoms and the hormonal imbalances and the stress it puts on your organs. I mean, it wreaks havoc with your hormones. So many red flags. And, and I really urge people who are struggling with it to seek help because it really isn't a solution to anything. And, and it really does mess up your health. I'd like to conclude this conversation, Rachel, by just asking for people who have a child or a partner or a family member or a friend who might be, they might be suspicious of, particularly something like bulimia, which is incredibly secretive and still not really spoken about, what would you advise them to do? Yeah, I think just recognizing that you're actually taking a really good step already in listening to this podcast and try and educate yourself a bit more about like what is bulimia as we've spoken about like it will manifest itself differently for different people for different reasons so I think you know you can look on the internet there's the beat website there's a lot of national center for eating disorders in the UK for example like we'll have these tip lists about this is bulimia and it's really good to have that knowledge but also trying to open up the conversation with your loved one about it and as we've spoken about they might be a bit defensive about it or they might not want to speak initially um but just trying to understand from their perspective what is it and i think sometimes if they say stuff that doesn't quite make sense just trying to hold space for them and not jumping down their throat about it and trying to let them explain to you because i think the conversations about food are useful but they're also probably likely to be points of contention so trying to help them open up about the other things that are going on is it stress at the minute that's maintaining this is it what were they told about their body when they were growing up were they bullied like trying to you know tease out those other factors for the person that are maintaining it if you can um but if not i think just holding space for them until they kind of reach that turning point but equally now i have children um i don't know what i would do if either of them had an eating disorder and i work with clients about this so i think just trying to not put too much pressure on yourself to fix it for them because you're not going to be able to do that. Like it's up to the person themselves. I think the the best thing for me is that people can just love you and show you that they're not going to judge you and they're not going to shame you and creating that safe space. And I think what you've also spoken about, which for lots who are waiting for NHS treatment, is that you can approach charities as mind there are lots of eating disorder charities to look at. There's BEAT, which is a huge national one, and they can offer a lot of support and help. And there are the programs such as ABA, Anorexics and Bulimics Anonymous, as Overeaters Anonymous. There is free help out there. So again, I urge people who are listening who are struggling with an eating disorder to reach out to alternative resources if, if they are on a waiting list or if treatment hasn't proven to be effective so far there are lots of different avenues and I think that's what we're trying to reiterate that there is no one-size-fits-all approach and it is a messy trajectory so just don't give up yeah I'd also add there are a lot of podcasts um, about eating disorders now I know like about 15 probably off the top of my head so do you know if you just search eating disorder recovery or bulimia recovery or whatever like you're probably likely to find quite a lot and then a lot of therapists if you find them even if maybe you don't have the resources um to be able to work with them one-to-one often people have like free downloads and things like that so like I've got kind of a free challenge on my website that's based on body image so there's kind of like self-help 
activities that you can do as well if you did feel motivated to do that. Well, Rachel, thank you so, so much for taking the time and for being just so generous with your story and for sharing what's such an honest portrayal of of an eating disorder. I'm incredibly grateful for you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healing 101. Just a reminder that if you're struggling or in need of someone to talk to, please remember to text SHOUT to 85258.